Well, good evening. Welcome, welcome. Good to see you here tonight. We're going to uh, pick up where we left off uh, last week, and uh, we had wrapped up the last bits, I think, of uh, the plan of God, and so we're ready to move on tonight into ecclesiology. If, uh, although if we have some questions or some last details, we can uh, put those together here tonight on Bulology, on the plan of God, the Alpha and Omega view on, uh, on that. Let me open us up with prayer, and then we'll uh, get back to our study. Shall we pray? Father, we do come before you tonight, thankful for your truth and rejoicing, Father, in your faithfulness. Day by day, morning by morning, Father, your mercies are renewed, your great is thy faithfulness. And all we can do is call upon you and, and rejoice. Father, we're in a season right now where there's a lot of uncertainty and, and even fear, Father, and uh, in this political season, and a lot of folks uh, don't have their eyes on you, and uh, they're looking to Tuesday with great dread or, or great hope or both. And uh, Father, I pray that as your word goes forth, that your children would be comforted and encouraged and stabilized, Father. Mostly, I, I rejoice in the stability that comes, Father, that we're not tossed to and fro. I thank you for stability that comes by being anchored in your truth. And I pray tonight, Father, as once again we return to the studies on basics and all the things that uh, every believer ought to have a handle on. Father, remind us of these truths, and I do thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Um, am I incorrect? Did we wrap up everything a week ago on the on the uh, plan of God in terms of the Alpha and Omega? I thought we did. Okay. And had I left some things hanging, and this is, by the way, this is two weeks ago, because last week we had the uh, potluck and the missionary report, so that's why I'm so rusty and out of sorts. It's been two weeks since we were last here together dealing with the basic doctrinal studies this hour, and then, of course, next hour we're going to be back into the gifts, ministries, and effects again. Um, Perhaps it'll come up in the process of teaching. All right. Uh, the, the next section in our notebook is the section on ecclesiology, which uh, gets us really to the last two. Uh, there were 10 total areas in basics, and if you've got a basics notebook, I noticed they're, they're all gone from the hallway, so that's good. It means they're being used. We need to make some more. Uh, so we've covered bibliology and theology, anthropology, soteriology, peripatology, thelematology, agonology, boulology. Oh my goodness, that's an awful lot. Uh, and now uh, we have two final categories remaining, and that's ecclesiology and charismatology, spiritual gifts, which really is a subset. It's a, it's a subcategory, falls within the overall umbrella of ecclesiology in some ways. I'll explain that as well. There were actually gifts in the Old Testament. Uh, there were prophets in the Old Testament. There were other gifted believers. I think the craftsmen that were called upon to build the, the tabernacle and to uh, sew the, the uniforms for the priests and the high priest and all of that, uh, they were gifted because they were skilled by the Holy Spirit to accomplish their tasks. And so uh, in, in much the same way that uh, believers today are gifted, it's an empowerment by the Holy Spirit. All right? And so we've got some things to, to break down when it comes to that. And uh, we will do so as we reach um, charismatology. For tonight, though, we want to deal with ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church. And the church uh, comes from ekklesia, the Greek noun, feminine noun that references the church. Uh, comes from ek, out, and kaleo, to call, call out. And, and as a secular term, uh, ekklesia was used in a lot of contexts, and it was used in many called out assembly. It was a, a term for assembly, uh, when people are called out. And they may be called out for a variety of purposes. Uh, Maybe called out for a political purpose, maybe called out for a a spiritual purpose, called out for a secular purpose. It even has one interesting use uh, when it was a mob. (laughs) You get a mob that's called together, and it's a called out mob when it comes down to it. Um, But to understand where we are in the body of Christ, this this becomes key. Uh, because there's so much bad information that's out there, misunderstandings, replacement theology, and other things, where, especially where Israel and the church get blurred, where the distinctions get lost. We want to be very clear. Uh, Israel and the church are different, always have been, always will be. Uh, the church does not replace Israel, and, uh, and we, want to be, we want to be solid. So this is a study in the universal church and the purpose and function for the local church. We'll break those down for you as well. In the study of God's plan, several distinct stewardships were detailed. If you were here for that, then you were part of that study. 
and uh, the present stewardship of the church needs to be accurately taught in order for believers today to function appropriately. And so the basic doctrinal study of ecclesiology will have three overall objectives. If we can knock those out in one fell swoop, then we're good. If we need extra classes, then fine. We're going to take it as slowly as we need to, but we want to make sure every believer is solid. Uh, First of all, establishing the distinctions between Israel and the church. And you can never stress this too much, and you can never teach too much on this. And Schaefer developed multiple points of of distinction, and and it's one of my favorite sections in the whole uh, systematic theology. Secondly, teaching the aspects of the church, universal, and the local church. I will consistently use a capital C when I'm talking about the church universal. And for that, we're talking about every believer from Pentecost to rapture, every born-again believer within this stewardship, uh, and most of whom are in heaven now. But the final generation, uh, or the present generation, still walks this earth in in mortality. But we have 20 centuries of of church that's already absent from the body and at home with the Lord. And uh, so we want to understand that. The church has never been united until the trumpet sounds. And then for the first time ever, the entire body of Christ will be gathered together in the air to meet the Lord in the air. So aspects of church universal and local church. And, and, and that one maybe um, is not a, a, as vital or, or, or apt to misteaching as it were. I don't think it gets perverted so badly. But then again, how many folks, um, well, I'll talk about that too. I think there are obligations and expectations for the church universal that the church universal will achieve. However, that doesn't mean that every single local church must be actively engaged in all of that. See, I think each local church has particular callings and particular focuses uh, within the overall umbrella. And and if we can relax about where we are and what we're called to do, I think that helps. Uh, Where we don't feel like Austin Bible Church, for example, has to achieve every single thing that the church universal has to achieve. Does that make sense? So a distinction between church universal and local church, I think, is also helpful in that capacity. Finally, then, the third objective of this material is describing the basic structure of local church organization. What, uh, what makes us a local church? And what's the difference between you know, a home Bible study and a local church? The fact that we have a building, does that make a difference? Uh, what, what is the difference between a Bible study and a, and a lampstand and a local church? See? And, and if it is a local church, then how should it be organized? How should it be structured? And uh, those kind of details. All right, Israel and the church contrasted. Lewis Berry Chafer developed 24 contrasts between Israel and the church. And if you want to look it up, or you got Schaefer at home or somewhere in the church library, it's in volume 4, page 47. And these contrasts are simple, short, and presented for even the baby believer to appreciate. And I picked my favorite 11, all right? And, and because they speak to me, I use them all the time. I've used them in the past with, with different people. And, uh, and, and to me, they were the ones that made the most sense. Others, I'm not saying they were wrong and I wasn't really disputing, but to me, they weren't as, as ready for um, coffee shop discussions with different folks and in different ways. So this, uh, the third one in his list was the seed of Abraham. The seed of Abraham promise was given with two different figures. All right, We've got the dust of the earth figure. We've got the stars of heaven figure. And these are metaphors that are used in the book of Genesis. And so it's useful for us to consider Genesis 13, 16, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. That's an earthly metaphor. All right, I don't think you can get much more earthly than dust. <laughs> okay? we're, we're formed out of dust. Adam was formed out of dust. We're going to return to dust. Our physical frame, it's ashes to ashes and dust to dust. And, and so we get that. But then the metaphor switches to stars. He took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars. If you're able to count them, he said, so shall your descendants be. And so it's the same promise, but it's, it's repeated multiple times as the Abrahamic covenant is unfolded. But these two metaphors, why those two? Why, why change metaphors like that? Why use an earthly metaphor and a heavenly metaphor? And uh, well, we can appreciate the fact that 
Uh, we can understand the distinction between an earthly people and a heavenly people. We can understand that as a visual aid, these metaphors help us to think in terms of literal physical descendants of, of Jacob, those that are racially Jewish and a part of the covenant nation of Israel, versus those that are spiritual descendants, as Galatians teaches it, or uh, as Romans might, might approach it, in the sense that Abraham is the, uh, is the forefather of, of, of our faith in that respect. And so we can think of an earthly people, we can think of a heavenly people. And if we think in those terms, I mean, we haven't even left Genesis yet, but if we think in those terms of an earthly people and a heavenly people, we do ourselves a big favor in uh, delineating between Israel and the church, because Israel is an earthly people. The church is a heavenly people. Our citizenship is in heaven. And, uh, and the, the blessings we have is in heaven. The treasure we lay up is in heaven. Our resources are in heaven. Our operations are in heaven. Everything we do is supposed to be with a heavenly focus. Whereas Israel, their focus was earthly. Their land grant was earthly. Their neighbors were earthly. Their uh, heritage is earthly. And everything uh, accomplished there is, is in an earthly perspective. So uh, I, I enjoy this quite a bit. Uh, Jacob's children are the earthly descendants and constitute the nation of Israel. And when Abraham's promise is confirmed to Jacob, only the dust of the earth figure is given. And so it gets restated in, in Genesis 28. And if you'll notice, it's the uh, we're back to the dust again. And Jacob does not receive the, the um, stars promise that Abraham receives. And, and that's not accidental. Members of the church are the heavenly descendants of Abraham on the basis of faith. And so we've got Romans 4.16. Galatians 3, 6, 7, and 9. And so there are Abrahamic descendants, not only to those of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And of course, we taught this in some length. We had a Roman series not that long ago where we were teaching it chapter by chapter, and then presently, of course, the Galatians series, uh, which has been at a much slower pace, but uh, the detail that we taught was there in uh, Galatians chapter 3. So that, that right there, I mean, do you need more? <laughs> okay, I'll give you more. Like I said, I picked out my favorite 11. Schaefer had 24. So how overwhelming do you want to build the case, right? Birth. Israelites become what they are by physical birth. Christians become what they are by spiritual birth. And so there you have it. And uh, if you're born to Jewish parents, you're a Jew. If you're born to Gentile parents, then you're a Gentile. And even if you become, for example, a proselyte, you're still a Gentile as a proselyte that has converted and is operating under, uh, under uh, Judaism circumstances. It, and the requirements are by physical birth. And by the way, even if you live your whole life as a Jewish unbeliever, you're still a Jew. And in the Old Testament covenant, you were still a part of their covenant blessings. You were still a part of their stewardship responsibilities even as an unbeliever. You were the next high priest if your dad was the last high priest, right? Whether you were saved or not. The personal regenerate status and salvation was, was not a function of their stewardship. And that, that kind of blows our minds away because that's so alien to how we operate. In the church, you cannot be a steward until you are born again. And, and if you're simply professing faith and, and uh, you know, being a phony in a, in a local church somewhere, you're not a part of the church universal until you receive eternal life by faith in Christ. At which point then, you're a part of the universal stewardship we have in the church. And so, I'll never forget when, this, when, when Ralph first challenged me with this, and it just blew my mind. I thought, wow, their stewardship had, had nothing to do with whether they were saved or, or lost. You know, whether they went to Abraham's bosom or they went to torments. <laughs> uh, they all went to Sheol, just which side, you know, which compartment did they land in? And, and, and their earthly stewardship was what it was based upon earthly requirements, not spiritual requirements. All right, nationality. Israel belongs to the earth. This is number seven in, in Schaefer's outline. Nationality. Israel belongs to the earth and to the world system, although above all nations in Jehovah's reckoning, they are still in the world as one of its nations. Over against this and forming the strongest contrast is the fact that the church is composed of all nations, including Israel, and sustains no citizenship here, but instead the believers are strangers and pilgrims. And this is, um, I, I ripped all of this off word for word out of Schaefer, so I may not phrase things exactly the same way, but, but still I can appreciate the way that he expressed this. And so whether you're from, you know, uh, Ukraine or Kenya or the Philippines or Mexico or Texas or America or wherever else, 
uh, it doesn't matter. The earthly citizenship, we have heavenly citizenship when we place our faith in Christ. And this is the great blessing that we have here. Uh, the Father, Roman numeral 12 to Schaefer. To Israel, God is known by his primary titles, but not as the father of the individual Israelite. Think about that. They would view themselves as sons of Abraham or sons of David, or sons of their tribe. They would view themselves as sons of Reuben, or sons of Gad, um, or a particular clan. If a, if a clan became noteworthy, they would view themselves as sons of a, of a particular clan leader, right? Um, but we don't have in the Old Testament that sense of sonship to the Father, not expressed in the way that we do in the, in the New Testament, all right? And so um, in distinction to this, the Christian actually is begotten of God, has every right to address him as Father. And all the promises of Abba Father and all the, the realities we have of being baptized in the union with Christ and the great sonship that we have. Now, I agree with this, and this is huge. I think Schaefer is right on target with this, but at the same time, a word of caution, Old Testament believers really were sons of God by faith in Christ. Okay, It just wasn't a scriptural emphasis in the Hebrew canon. So I want to be clear on that. Any questions on that? They were saved like we're saved by, by grace through faith. They were born again. And Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And, 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 and so that was something that Nicodemus was expected to already know. And, and uh, from all the indications we have there in John chapter 3. So they were sons. It's just they didn't have the scriptures to, to give them that, that appreciation the way we have. Okay, In any event. Uh, Christ. Christ. To Israel, Christ is Messiah, Emmanuel, and King, with all that those appellations imply. To the church, Christ is Savior, Lord, Bridegroom, and Head. And uh, we can actually expand on that list. We can expand on the list both on the Jewish side and on the church side. The various titles in the description of Messiah. Uh, the Jews would describe their Messiah. We would describe our Christ. And uh, more often than not, yeah, when you start lining up all the descriptions of, of that the Jews would describe their Messiah, those are the things they would think of. Uh, we, what would we think of in terms of the the groom and the the head and and uh, these aspects? In fact, we just sang right in the in the hymn we just sang. That's right. Um, much of our hymnology would be totally lost on an Old Testament believer. Because we're dealing in the reality and they're dealing in the shadows and they're looking forward and, and we have the full picture of things they were just um, imagining. Holy Spirit, only in exceptional instances and for unusual service did the Holy Spirit come upon an Israelite. And oftentimes they would come and go. <laughs> the Spirit of God would come upon a, a Samson or a, one of the judges, for example, or come upon a prophet and the prophet would prophesy and then the Spirit would depart. The Spirit withdrew as freely as he came when the purpose was accomplished. The strongest contrast is to be seen here in that the Christian is indwelled by the Spirit. In truth, he is not saved apart from this relation to the Spirit. And this is what the spiritual, one of the blessings included with the spiritual birth. We receive the permanent indwelling of God the Holy Spirit. That is a, a church age blessing, not to be uh, uh, confused with the uh, Old Testament uh, uh, pneumatology with the, the, the ministry of the Holy Spirit towards the Jewish people. Governing principle. For 15 centuries, the law of Moses was Israel's rule of daily life. Unlike this, the members of Christ's body, being wholly perfected in Him, are under the beseechings and directions which grace provides. And uh, I don't know about you. Well, I, I probably do. I wouldn't trade grace for law. Uh, not in a billion years. Uh, the, to have grace as the operating principle to no longer be under the law because christ is the end of the law for all who believe that the requirements of the law are fulfilled in us as we walk in grace as we walk in christ as we're led by the spirit so as a governing principle it's a whole different economy see it's like going from a you know from one economy to another can you imagine going from uh you know think about different economies and different stages of world history um, you know, think about different, and even even today, there's different economies today. Okay, uh, in fact, in prison, there's there's a, there's a whole economy there that deals with barter and trade and other things, and uh, it's different from the civilian world economy, right? So think of economies and think about what the medium of exchange would be in different economies. Well, 
law versus grace represent, in my mind, a powerful contrast in economies. And our economy today is a grace economy. Divine enablement. Oh, man. The law provided no enabling power for its achievement. You ever think about that? It's, it's, it's so different from how we live today. And it goes hand in hand with our permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit, because with the Holy Spirit comes that empowerment. But consider, here's Israel, and they're placed under 613 commandments of the law. All of these do's and do nots, and thou shalt, and thou shalt not. They've got 613 commandments in the law, and no divine empowerment to keep any of it. (laughs) Okay, whereas what do we have? Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We have empowerment, empowerment to walk, empowerment to live, empowerment to apply, empowerment to resist sin. And so uh, to the church, however, as certainly as superhuman requirements are laid on her members, so certainly supernatural power is provided for every demand. And uh, I tell you, it's useful. He quotes... uh, Romans 6.14 there, sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. And the provision we have in the grace economy is exactly that. The Holy Spirit's empowerment to not sin. We saw it in Galatians 5. If you walk by means of the Spirit, you will not ever fulfill the lust of the flesh. You cannot sin under the powerment of God the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced, <laughs> all right? And this is just a handful of distinctions between Christ and the, between Israel and the church. How about the promise of Christ's return? Christ's uh, return to Israel as her king in power and great glory, which time she will be gathered from every part of the earth by angelic ministration and into her own land. All right, that's what Israel is looking forward to. The church, over against these great events promised to Israel, is the return of Christ for his own bride when he takes her with him into heaven's glory. That's a, it's extremely different. And you'll notice uh, when he comes for his bride, the Lord himself descends with a shout. The Lord himself comes for his bride, and then we're gathered to him. In the second advent, I think you, you, Robert mentioned this a week ago, the second advent, it's a regathering that's accomplished by angelic agency. The angels are sent forth to the four corners of the earth. The angels gather, and they don't gather the Jews to meet the Lord in the air. They gather the Jews to meet the Lord in the wilderness, all right, where they are judged in the wilderness. And then when they march up the holy highway, those that survive the judgment, believers, march up the holy highway into the uh, millennial Jerusalem. So a whole distinction in the gathering. John 14 is often overlooked. Everybody's quick to go to 1 Thessalonians for the rapture or go to 1 Corinthians. And those are great texts, don't get me wrong. You want to start with 1 Thessalonians 4. You want to follow it up with 1 Corinthians 15. Put those together and when you're done with that, definitely put in John 14. You've got to put John 14 in there. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. That's not Jerusalem. Jesus has not been in Jerusalem for the last 2,000 years preparing our place. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Okay? You might have heard that this morning. (laughs) All right, the kids were singing. Glad the kids were in here singing that this morning. All right. And so this is all true. This is what he's been doing. And and to me, I'm, I'm, I'm... waiting to see this i can't imagine because i know what he did in six days i know what he did in that creative work i know but imagine two thousand years assuming of course he's been doing that the whole time and nothing else i I mean maybe it's they're already finished i i don't know but whatever the case he's been preparing these places and uh, and i'm looking forward to it priesthood I use this one a lot too. Israel had a priesthood. The church is a priesthood. Isn't that simple? Short and simple and sweet and memorable. Israel had a priesthood. What tribe was that? The tribe of Levi. That's right. So if you're just, you know, some other Jewish monk from some other tribe and you needed a priest to, inter- to intervene for you, okay, and you had to go find a priest. And, uh, and uh, there you go. Israel had a priesthood. But what do we need to do? Do we got to go find a priest somewhere? 
Do we got to go sit in a booth and confess our sins? No, we are priests. Okay, and one of the the great blessings of the of the Protestant Reformation is the is the the, the reminder of that. It had been stamped out and ignored for how many years? Fifteen hundred years or thereabouts, right? Um, but no, we are a priesthood. All of us, the church universal, we are a royal priest. Uh, we are a, a kingdom of priests. That's important. Marriage. Now, Israel and the church each had a marriage metaphor, but they're so different. And that's the thing. The differences outweigh the similarities, and people get confused because of the similarities. And they see a bride in the Old Testament, and they see, and they see uh, Yahweh as the, as the husband, and they see Israel as the wife. And there's a difference between a wife and a bride, particularly a faithless harlot wife, and a virgin uh, bride that is still espoused, that is not yet married. All right. So there's even within the metaphor, there's differences. As a nation, Israel is likened by Jehovah to his wife, a wife untrue and yet to be restored. And uh, this comes up in, in Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Hosea. I mean, the whole book of Hosea is a, is, is a picture of this. Uh, Isaiah 54, Galatians 4.27. All right. Uh, in marked distinction to this situation respecting Israel is the revelation that the church is to Christ as one espoused and to be married in heaven. We're not yet consummated. We're not yet married. We are still espoused, all right? And so we are the virgin bride. Israel was anything but a virgin, although that's one of the miracles too, is uh, the, uh, he calls her his virgin when he uh, uh, restores her in, in uh, the millennium. But we have 2 Corinthians 11, 2, Revelation 19, verses 7 through 9, other passages there as it relates to the metaphor of Christ and the church, of the, the bridegroom and the bride, and uh, we're not yet married. We're espoused, but not yet married. The reason why is because the bride is not yet ready. The bride is not yet complete. Jesus is not going to marry a partial bride. Okay, I've yet to meet a groom that ever married a partial bride, and uh, it's just it's it's, it's kind of goofy to even think about. All right, and the idea of, of leaving the altar with only a part of a bride is 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 again it's unthinkable. Okay, oh this is fun, and. Uh, the, uh, the, 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 so many of the bad uh, approaches to the rapture, for example, the partial rapture theory, the pre-trib rapture, or the, I'm sorry, the mid-wrath rapture, the pre-wrath mid-trib, all the bad views. Um, there's some bad approaches, even some approaches to the outer darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth that insist on chopping up the bride. When none of those passages are given in, in a church age context, they're all given to Israel. If there's people outside weeping and gnashing their teeth, they are the Jews in their loss of reward, not the bride. Okay? And that's important. Anyway, if you want more on that, there's more to be found in uh, Schaefer. Any questions on any of those? I don't go in too quickly. All right, microphone up here, please. Ah, do I have the microphone? I do. There you are. We wouldn't say that grace was not operational in the Old Testament, would we? No, we wouldn't say that. There was a lot of grace in the Old Testament. People that got saved got saved by grace. Mm -hmm. Yep, absolutely. Uh, The law was um, had to do mostly had to do with the details of life. It seemed to me Uh, spiritual things in the in the individual believer's life. For example, um, was there a feature? of the believer's life in the Old Testament that we would call edification. Oh, sure. And but all so, within the scope of observing the law. Though We're talking about Jewish, unbeliever, uh, Jewish believers. Jewish believers, right. right. And they, well, uh, what about Gentile? Um, I think Gentile... Believers uh, that, or proselytes, for example. Well, I think it speaks to grace, too, with respect to... How about those Gentiles that never even tried to be proselytes? Uh, uh, Moses' father-in-law was a priest of Midian and, and, and never attempted to be a Jewish proselyte or Job or Nebuchadnezzar. Right. Um, I, I expect there was a tremendous amount of grace with respect to their walk, but they weren't the stewards. And so the Jews operating in their stewardship, they were under law as an operating principle for their daily life and uh, in those aspects. But you're right. It was, it's not as if grace was unheard of or, or absent in, uh, in the Old Testament. 
Uh, back row then. Two, two questions. So could you clarify, Pastor Bob, just clearly, uh, what exactly was the concept of being born again to an Old Testament uh, Jewish person? Yeah, same thing as us. It's, it's placing your faith in Messiah. Uh, although we placed our faith in the Messiah who came, the Messiah who died on the cross and rose from the dead, they were placing their faith in the coming Messiah, the seed of the woman that had been promised and the son of Abraham that was promised. Um, and so trusting in the coming Messiah, tr- faith in Christ is the provision of eternal life. And those who did receive eternal life became sons of God on that basis. Yeah. And we have some passages, and I'm working on more. I'm trying to compile a, a list of, of Old Testament gospel passages that, that would have been used in such times for such purposes. I've got, I've got a few now, and I'm working on some more. Bradley. Old Testament passages related to that. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, right, right. Abraham believed God. It was reckoned in his righteousness. Um, just to clarify, when we talk about they had no, the law gave them no divine uh, enablement to fulfill it. Right. Not to say, though, that they didn't still have the scriptures, which were divine, and which were, like we see in the, you know, in Psalm 119, mm-hmm. the psalmist there, he says, you know, your law and your word are counselors to me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, many ways that we treat the word, how, you know, we renew our mind. And it seems that Psalm 119 there, he's doing similar things. It may not be exact, but... No, I, that's that's fair. Yeah. And many of the Proverbs we've studied in Proverbs, yeah. where if a young man, you know, orders his life according to wisdom, um, then there is a consequence to that in, in the application of wisdom. So um, you're right. It's, it's, it is a provision... Um, I guess we could think of it as an empowerment as well, uh, but it's not like the permanent dwelling of the Holy Spirit that right. we have. Our position is in Christ, and we get to live through Him, which we're living through His perfection. And I guess they don't—they didn't have something similar to that at all. Correct. They had no positional okay. truth of being in Christ. Yeah. Uh-huh. Excellent questions. Yes, sir. Deuteronomy one ten is describing the sons of Israel as the star, as numerous as the stars of the sky. Does that conflict with that contrast between Israel and the church at all? Um, no, I wouldn't think so. Because, you know, we're not building the contrast on the two metaphors. We're simply pointing out that the two metaphors help us to understand an earthly people and a heavenly people. So, yeah, I wouldn't view this as being problematic for the distinction between Israel and the church. Yep. Excellent. I forgot about Deuteronomy 110. <laughs> yes, you do need the mic. Please. Is this going to be on my yes. People years from now will listen to this. Okay. Well, what happens to... or What is the position of somebody like Saul who was used and then disobeyed? Could he have been saved? Oh yes, I believe Saul was. People will argue with me on that, uh, but I believe Saul was a believer, and um, I have, in fact, passages I use to support that. But as Saul, Solomon, others that die the sin unto death, they have a horrible end of their life. Uh, but clearly, they were saved, and under you know eternal security, you can't lose your salvation. So even those who die the sin unto death still, you know, die and go to heaven. Or back then, they died and went to Abraham's bosom. But. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, David in his song when he was lamenting Saul and Jonathan they died on the same day and he spoke of them being united and being united together in their death and beyond and so we understand that, that Saul and Jonathan were both believers and David was looking forward to seeing them again in, uh, in the resurrection So, alright Doug you need the microphone on the back row again yeah, let's keep alternating back row, front row, back row, front row, and we can uh, keep the, the runner running as much as possible. This is maybe off topic a little bit, but I was wondering about Saul and Solomon, who, if they're saved, uh-huh. but died the sin unto death, they will still rule with David in the millennium. 
Well, Saul won't. Saul was not a Davidic king. Saul was from Benjamin, and he preceded David. But okay. uh, we were talking this morning Solomon. about the resurrected David and the re- resurrected Davidic kings that will rule as princes and, and the sons of the prince. And that's, uh, uh, that would include Solomon and Hezekiah and Josiah and all those good kings of Judah. Even but not he, Saul. I don't believe Saul would be included. Okay. In that. Even though he died the sin unto death, Solomon will still. Uh-huh. Okay. Even Manasseh, can you imagine Manasseh? Wicked for 55 years and then he gets saved at the end of his life. He will be resurrected for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. What a, what a thrill. Boy, sit down and talk to him. <laughs> Excellent. One more. One more. All right. Would it be fair to say that the ministry of the Holy Spirit was similar in the Old Testament times, even though we didn't have the doctrines as fully developed in the New Testament, like illumination or the Spirit leading believers into understanding the Jewish scriptures with a divine enablement that wasn't really spelled out like we have from Paul, like like David had understanding of the law from the teaching of the Holy Spirit, perhaps. Possible, but I don't have a text to to uh, lock in on. Um, I mean, the Holy Spirit as a teacher could obviously have taught like he teaches now. Just it would have been externally rather than internally. Um, but I think the, uh, and, that, and that's key too, is understanding that an Old Testament believer who's born again does have a living human spirit. And so with a living human spirit, he can apprehend the things of the Spirit of God. And so uh, by virtue of the living human spirit, he can learn the Word of God and cycle doctrine and, and, and apprehend the Hebrew Scriptures in, in that case. And I think Psalm 119 speaks to that and the other Old Testament texts speak to that. I would, I would hunt for an uh, Old Testament passage that has God the Holy Spirit as the subject of a teaching verb and then I'd be more comfortable agreeing on that, on that basis. And right now I just don't have it. All right. The church universal and the local church. So we've got the whole kit and caboodle, right? The entire thing. Uh, the church is the body. And again, capital C, capital B. Anytime I capitalize, sometimes I capitalize M for members. Members of the church, all right? It's not a member of a local church, but a member of the body of Christ. Um, so we're the body, we're the bride of Jesus Christ. Every born-again believer from Pentecost to Rapture is a member of that body. And so all these believers are reading about in the, in the New Testament. They're all with the Lord right now. They're all in heaven. They're all part of His body. And, uh, and every believer in the, in the centuries since, from the church fathers to the Reformation to, to everything, like I say, 20 centuries of, of the bride is already there. And it's only the present, uh, presently living saints that, that still walk this earth in mortality. Uh, when referencing the universal church, it is customary to capitalize the word. I didn't invent that. That's a, a practice that preceded me. I don't know who invented that, but it's, uh, that's what we do. All right, a local church is a small part of the church universal. Specifically, it is a particular flock entrusted to a gifted shepherd. And in the New Testament, it's pretty easy to spot because it's often referred to as uh, the church at, okay? Uh, At Ephesus, at Corinth, at Thessalonica. You know, it's at a place. It is a locative church. And believers may move around. Believers, you know, can roam from place to place, and Titus can go to Dalmatia, and other things can happen. But... um, the, the lampstand stays where it is. The church is there, regardless of who leaves there and who goes there. The lampstand is there. And, and if a lampstand is removed out of its place, that's a, that's a facet of judgment. When Jesus Christ uh, pronounces judgment upon a faithless shepherd in Revelation 2 and 3. So removing a lampstand can be a, a divine discipline issue when God removes uh, a, a place of light in a community, for example. So... Uh, we can, we can spot them here. All right. Um, specifically, a local church is a particular flock entrusted to a gifted shepherd. Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd, and he oversees the flock of the entire church. But he has designated and delegated under shepherds. We call them pastors. Pastor is just a Latin term. All right. Poimen is the Greek. Um, they, they all mean shepherd. To shepherd the flock of God among them. First Peter 5, uh, 1 through 4. Okay. I go here a lot. It's a, it's a passage that's dear to me, and it's easy. It's easy to find. It's easy to point people to. Um, shepherd the flock of God among you. That's verse 2. Shepherd the flock. We're here to shepherd. 
and uh, exercising oversight, not under compulsion. Well, we're going to talk about this when we get back on Wednesday night to the compulsion issues we started this morning in Galatians. But voluntarily according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge. This is huge. Nor yet as lording it. Take the noun kurios for Lord, make it a verb, and don't do that. <laughs> okay? Don't kurio, don't lord it, because you're not the Lord. Okay? And there's the good shepherd, and then there's you. You're the under shepherd. Don't mix those up. And um, those allotted to your charge, okay? You didn't allot them to your own charge. This is the Lord's flock. And if he assigned sheep to you, then that's his good pleasure. You be faithful. And if he, uh, if he assigns a lot, be faithful. If he assigns a little, be faithful. But those allotted to your charge, this is key. And I tell folks this, I tell visitors this, I tell anyone that wants to know, the, the, if, you're, if you're searching for a church, the, the number one criteria is, who have I been allotted to? <laughs> okay? Everything else is just details, all right? You can check out the music, you can check out the singles program or the nursery or the Sunday school. I mean, people usually have a long list of things they're looking for, the bowling league or whatever they're looking for in a, in a church, all right? To me, there's a criteria, that criteria is, who have I been allotted to? And then everything else kind of falls into place after that, see? Proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So the under-shepherd works for Jesus Christ, right? The, the messengers in Revelation 2 and 3, they're held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. This becomes important. All right, so... Um, a local church is a family, or a body in a given geographical location assembled together for the corporate functions of the body and the bride. And then we have this seven times spelled out in Revelation 2 and 3. The church at Ephesus, the church at Pergamum, the church at Thyatira, the church at Sardis, and so forth. Each one has a tailored message specific to that lampstand. And the shepherd of, of Ephesus Bible Church is not commanded to go fix Thyatira. He's commanded to fix himself the love that he lost, and, and to resume what he should be doing with the first deeds at, at Ephesus, okay? By the way, most of the rebukes are singular, not plural. Most of the rebukes are applied to the angeloi, to the angel, to the messenger of those churches, not to the, the churches at large. So a, a local church is not a building, but a living body of believers in Jesus Christ. You know, we were, the, we were Austin Bible Church at the old place, we're Austin Bible Church at this place, and we would be Austin Bible Church anywhere. If this place burns down tomorrow without a building, we're still Austin Bible Church. We're the body of believers. Any assembly of believers under the shepherding oversight of a pastor teacher is a local church. Specifically, if Jesus Christ has planted a lampstand and walks in the midst of that lampstand, that's a local church. Now, a local church may be without a pastor for a brief period of time, but they cannot stay that way for very long. And it's, it, to me, it's sickening, the national average of how long a church goes, three years between pastors trying to find their next pastor. And that's a, that, to me, that's a horrendous average and a long time to be sheep without a shepherd. We're praying for Corpus Christi right now. How long have they been? And uh, over two years now. And they're, they're praying hard for Pastor Dan, and so are we. Sheep without a shepherd become scattered and devoured. All right? That is just the way it works. Uh, sheep don't become, uh, you know, feral warriors and survivors out there, and they don't fight off the wolves. They get eaten by the wolves. And uh, that's the nature of sheep. A true local church must have at least one man with a spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. And I still hold to that, although I've, changed, I've, I've taught some, some more developed approaches to that and we'll speak to that in next hour and we talk about the gift of leadership because the gift of leadership is not the gift of, of poime and kai didaskalos and there is a distinction between the two and i know of um in 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 one case uh the senior man the right hand messenger had the gift of evangelist and his assistant had the gift of pastor teacher and they worked in tandem and um not saying that wasn't a biblical practice. I think it was a biblical practice. It works out. All right, but we'll talk about that when we talk about gifts and ministries and effects next hour. 
that one man exercising that one gift cannot fully edify the body of Christ. All believers exercising every gift supplies the maximum edification for each member and it provides the uh, uh, maximum glory for the head, that is, Jesus Christ himself. And so when you, when you think about the joints and the marrow, when you think about that which every joint supplies, right? The proper working of every individual part. No body is mono um, part, okay? Uh, you got to have more than one part or it's not a body. And, and so we've got varieties. We've got two hands and two feet and we've got uh, the different parts that come together. And it's the working of each individual part and the building up of itself in love is what the New Testament talks about. And if the pastor is the only gifted believer in the church, uh, well, he's not the only gifted believer, but if he's the only one with a clue what his gift happens to be, Okay, and everybody else in the church is gifted but ignorant, then uh, you got a you got a problem. That's that's not a healthy church. And um, in 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 some respects, we've got this. Um, there's a reference to the ungifted that we talked about in in First uh, Corinthians 14, and the, the the role of the ungifted that's uh, spoken of there. We we dealt with that. I think that's uh, ungifted. Who's ungifted in this room? Well, if we're all saved, we're all gifted. See. And so sadly, what I think a lot of times ungifted applies to not just, not the, not the circumstance of not having a gift, but the circumstance of not knowing what your gift is. Not training it, not developing it, not pursuing ministry. All right, and, and as such, I think um, there's a remedy for ignorance, you know. <laughs> it's called teaching. And the teaching that God supplies is the, is the provision for otherwise the agnosticism that creeps in. All right. Uh, distinctions between church universal and local church should be pretty straightforward. We've preached it before. You should know it fairly well. Uh, again, let's let's look at Revelation just for the sake of it. Uh, the mystery of the lampstands, and you get to the end of chapter one, and it's spelled out. As for the mystery of the seven stars, see, apocalyptic literature is not complicated. Just read further down in context, and and the Bible will explain itself. Okay. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. I prefer messenger as a, as a uh, translation there. We're talking about a messenger. Jesus Christ holds one messenger accountable. And that's, uh, that's a messenger with a heavenly message to an earthly people. And so, you know, you can think of your pastor as an angel if you'd like, but it's, uh, you know, sometimes amusing in, uh, in different discussions. But that's what we deal with, all right? And you might have four or five or six elders. I hope you do. I hope, I mean, this church does. We got, we got some, all right? Warren's an elder and Glenn and myself. And you may have a plurality of elders. But Jesus Christ, nowhere in this text did Jesus Christ go to a committee and say, hey guys, let's huddle up here. He goes to one guy and says, fix this, or I'm fixing you, <laughs> right? Um, he goes to one guy. Seven and seven, that's huge, right? That's one per. And, and if you've got, you know, a thousand, then you've got a thousand. It's one per. And however many lampstands you're talking about, every lampstand, there's one per. There's one star held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. And that's who he holds accountable for the shepherding of that flock. See, and his fellow elders can come alongside and help and support and, and, and all the rest. But Jesus Christ holds that one shepherd accountable. So uh, we have it. And as we point out, as we look at all these, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, right. And so the letter is specifically to that messenger, not to the congregation at large. Sometimes uh, a message will be expanded beyond the messenger and include members of his flock. But more often than not, the, the rebukes and, and, and the instructions are given to the messenger. I know your deeds, singular, and your toil and perseverance, that you, singular. Okay, remember Greek has a singular and a plural, right? You and y'all. And, and, and we, we lose that, I think, in, in English sometimes. Except in Texas, we, we got the y'all that bails us out. There's the you and the y'all. And then there's the all y'all, okay? And, and, and this becomes important when we sit, start to see here, it wasn't the whole church that left their first love, it was their pastor. You know, and does a church suffer if their pastor's left his first love? You bet. 
So your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. You found them to be false. Okay, and wow, what a blessing. The pastor of Ephesus uh, was, was on the ball. He was, he was taking care of business because most of the other apostles, probably all of the other apostles are dead by now. John's the last living apostle. He's, on, he's in exile on Patmos. And then some fraud comes in and tells him he's an apostle. Well, okay. And he checks it out. He protects his flock. And uh, good for him. And you have uh, perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you. You have left your first love. Okay, And this against you, singular. Okay, You have left your first love. And so as we look at these passages, by the way, um, I know there's, there's folks out there, pastors I respect, that don't teach this the way I teach this. And they think these are actual spirit being heavenly type angels. Okay, Gabriel kind of guys. But the problem is, is that if these are, if these are spirit being type angels, a part of angelity rather than humanity, I got a problem because some of these are fallen angels then. You know, is this an elect angel that left his first love? Is this, uh, you know, um, you end up with fallen angels being written to here if, if you think that these are spirit dimension uh, uh, residents of, of the angelity realm. No, these are human beings. Angel is an office or a function of what they do as messengers, bringing a heavenly message to an earthly people. And uh, here we have it. Anyway, that's uh, probably enough on that. Each of these, we're familiar with this. We've taught this in the past. You'll note the circumstances are unique between Ephesus and Smyrna and Laodicea and all this. And, And no angel is expected to go fix a different man's flock. He's expected to fix his flock, shepherd his flock, deal with those issues. And Jesus Christ is the one. And and also note there's no hierarchy. There's no bishop and archbishop and and, uh, cardinal and pope. Okay? Because all seven are held in the right hand of Jesus Christ. All seven. And that's compatible with our seminary model that we have in in, uh, 2 Timothy 2. The things you've heard from me entrust to faithful men who will entrust to others also. Every pastor should be training his own men. All right, questions on this? Mr. Dowd gets our first question there. On the question of uh, a church replacing a pastor that has left... You know, when you say it takes up to three years, or mm-hmm. even longer, perhaps. Um, a a good, careful company is going to have succession plans for all the key people in the company, the president, the vice presidents, department heads, project managers, and so forth. Uh-huh. And usually that's demanded by a board of directors who's, who says, look, uh, we don't want any uh, big delays in our projects be- because somebody won the lottery. You know? <laughs> right. And so uh, if the pastor wins the lottery, uh, is he going to be there next Sunday? You know? <laughs> right. Uh, so it would it would seem that uh, the reason then, and you may, this is the question, mm-hmm. think of this as a question, that the reason that churches don't have uh, it. Um, a pastor ready to go when a pastor leaves is that they haven't taken the trouble to uh, prepare someone to to fill that place. I would agree with that. And I would think it's because they've uh, outsourced their seminaries to seminaries. Uh, I think it's because they, um, you know, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. I think that Paul-Timothy model is such that, um, that that we ought to be doing that absolutely ought to be doing that, and I got an example in the Old Testament too. I mean, where did David learn how to hang out with the sheep and, and watch the flocks? Well, probably it was with his older brothers and with his dad, and you know there probably came a time. Expect there was a time that that Jesse quit going out there to watch the the flocks because he had so many boys to do that. You know, I mean, when's the last time I mowed the lawn, right? Because you got you got teenage boys to do that. So um, I think that Jesse trained his sons and, and, and all of the boys learned how to shepherd. And uh, in, in doing that, I think pastors ought to have young men that, that are working on, on those skills. And, and that's how Ralph trained me, and I'm delighted to 
carry on that tradition. And I think that's the idea. All right, did John, did you have a question too? Oh, okay. All right. Other questions related to this? Over here then. We'll cross the aisle and be bipartisan tonight. Well, first, what you just said about training your relief, Mm -hmm. Um, that's what happened here, I guess, Mm -hmm. and I've seen it in other places as well, but I also had a question about the satellite groups that some churches have where they listen over the the phone or they get tapes and things. Yeah, I'm not a a fan. And, and I'm on record saying that, and I'm on video now saying that, and, and, and so forth. I mean, the, uh, the, the remote campuses and, and so forth, to me, uh, they lack the accountability. The shepherd doesn't know who they are. Uh, they don't, you know, it's, it's I just, I think it's, I think it violates the model. And, and so, uh, and, and it happens in different places uh, because they're, they're a hookup or they're, a, they're they, uh, they're a remote campus for a guy that's thousands of miles away and doesn't know who they are. Um, you know, and so you've got some admin guys, you've got people that are pushing the start and stop button and the eject button on the tape recorder or whatever they're doing. But who's in charge of that flock? You know, well, who, who's in charge of pushing the stop and eject button on the tape recorder, you know, or the, the equipment? Um, and and in, in a couple of cases, I've, I've no, I won't tell you the city because that'll give it away, but uh, a city that has both a real church with a real pastor and then a remote campus church with a... I mean, he's still a real pastor. He's just not there, okay? Um, and then every time this group needs a, a wedding or a funeral or something happens, you know, they end up calling the real pastor to come over and preach a funeral or, or do whatever or help with this or help with that. And, 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 and the man's a man of grace and I love him to death, but, you know... There's a little part of you that says, well, you know, tell your tape recorder to preach this funeral, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, and so um, that model, I think, and that's why, by the way, too, when we designed this building and, and our architects said, well, how big do you want the auditorium? You know, uh, uh, we have as a concept the idea that if it gets too large to shepherd, then I don't want to be in defiance of Jesus Christ. I'm told to feed the flock. I'm told to shepherd the sheep. And so the model is, is that as we grow, ideally, we should be planting lampstands in, for example, Bastrop or Round Rock or other places. And, and so when, when Lost Pines get started in Bastrop and four families uh, go down there, that's gorgeous. That's beautiful. That's, that's ideal. And we don't get sad over that or we don't feel like, uh, you know, we haven't lost four families the, the, we haven't lost anything. The, the, the kingdom of God has increased and the, and the lampstand is, is there that hadn't been there before. And on continuity, you're right, because um, when, when the sheep know David because they remember David when David was just a little ragamuffin following along his big brothers and his dad and whatever. And so when David starts shepherding them and they, they know that voice, they're familiar with how he sounds, how he smells and, and everything else. And, and, and there's that continuity there that if you train a man from within... You can just take things in stride and not miss a beat, see. Um, and then honestly, though, I mean, if you're picking a stranger out of a resume list and, and grabbing a guy out of a seminary, there's an awkward thing there where you're trying to get to know him and trying to get to know who he is and what he believes and whatever. And, and even if you used to know him, well, that was four years ago. Well, who's this guy now? And how ruined did he get in the meantime? <laughs> you know, did he, he went away. He was solid. He comes back. He's not even, you know doesn't believe in inerrancy anymore and other things so yeah there's a there's an application there um other quite these are good questions by the way i appreciate these the last section's on organization but um and if this if we save this until next week that's fine too but uh any additional questions i think on this is uh yes sir let's get uh, behind you there three rows uh, just back to Revelations. Uh, mm-hmm. he, Christ mentions that he's left his first love. Uh, mm-hmm. Do we have any indication what that is? Because he talks about how he defends his flock and he's you know steadfast in vetting everybody and that he's endured for his sake. So what what is his first love that he's left? <laughs> Boy, know? there's a question that's been asked for two thousand years. Oh now. really? Okay. You know, because the text doesn't define what it is, but it does connect it with first deeds. Do the deeds you did at first, and uh, and so I think connected with first love and first deeds. Um, 
It may be it may be temporal in terms of first in terms of time, but it may be priority, and um, it might be just those first things first kind of approach. And, and I, that's how I taught it. And then what did I put in my through the Bible notebook? <laughs> Whatever I put in my Revelation notebook and my through the Bible notebook, that's what I'm standing with tonight. Um, I, I, I might have even said that the, his first love was his his personal intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And how many pastors get so busy pastoring that they forget to to study and feed themselves and they forget to love Jesus themselves and they and when the last time they prayed was was when you know because they're so busy doing all these other things and so that first love if he loses that first love um intimacy with Jesus Christ and that's that's a problem okay back up to the front row now you do okay well that it also could be he's a pastor or teacher and maybe he got so busy teaching that he forgot about the shepherding, or the other way around, he got so busy shepherding and didn't know how to delegate some of that, and his teaching suffered. So it could be something like that. He had just started focusing on the leaves rather than the trees. Could be, yeah. Could be. And a lot of times there's that unbalance. The pastor-teacher just sacrifices half of his gift. I guess I need to ask your opinion, because I already have one, but I don't know if it's right. Uh-huh. Well, I was in Hawaii when Priscilla's parents were there, and he uh-huh. was pastor. And the mission board decides who they're going to send. Oh, uh huh. Now these are local churches in the U.S. of A. Right. But they're considered mission churches. Is that really proper? Uh, you know, I, I not biblically, not not as per. But you know these denominations that came up, and and uh, in in Methodist churches, for example, I mean they're going to move that guy within three years, or that woman these days. They're going to move them around within about three years or so, and and the denomination has sovereignty over where they go and when and why and whatever. It's it's kind of like apostolic at that point when they when they have such sovereignty, and they operate in in ter- and and a lot of this came up in church history with the sense of the the bishops and the archbishops and the cardinals and the pope and all of that. And then, you know, Protestant groups decide to create their own little, you know, Protestant replica of the, of the Roman hierarchy. And none of that can be sustained by the New Testament. So um, now, so having said all that and giving my opinion, because I have lots of opinions, at the same time, Jesus Christ in permissive will is still head of the church. And he allowed for those denominations to operate. And he uh, I think Jesus operates, he's, he's sovereign enough, <laughs> he's omnipotent enough, and he's smart enough that he can work through some of the most horrible pulpit committees and horrible procedures and other things. But I just think we do ourselves the best favors when we, when we stick to the most biblical practices that we can. And that would be a non-denominational approach. So, uh, but Christ is still head of the church, and praise God for that, that he can work even through a, a denominational approach in terms of that. So, yeah. All right, we're going to cross the aisle again. That um, non-denomination really kind of, even just like maybe 10 days ago, I didn't know how to answer that because someone's like, well, what kind of church do you go to? Like, mm-hmm. it's non-denomination, Bible church. Well, what does that mean? You know, what does that mean? And I kind of really got a little stuck because, well, because of the person that was asking was just okay, yeah. he's a little person. And he's, you know, Catholic and grew up Baptist. And I didn't really, because they well, what does that mean? Like, you know, not, there's so many non-denominations and, and I, I mean, I don't know the difference. Or, you know what I mean? Like, right, 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 I, right, yeah. No, we are, a, uh, we are what we just read about. We are a local lampstand and, and uh, uh, with, a, with a, a right-hand messenger. And, and so um, we don't answer to uh, a denomination or a, a hierarchy above us. And some people are horrified by this. You know, well, who... Who administers the discipline if your if your if your pastor is 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 a heretic or or uh, how do you pool together for insurance? Oh, we don't. <laughs> okay, which well, pray about with that. By the way, I got an appointment tomorrow morning, um, uh, and, and different things. We do cooperate in terms of uh, of missions and other things, and we're and we actually have a lot of freedom, so we can we can support Baptist missions or Lutheran missions or or whatever, you know, uh, because we have this freedom as a as a lampstand, and and really. The the ultimate ideal 
I think is one of the greatest blessings America's ever known. Because in a lot of countries, a lot of parts of the world can't do what we do here. But uh, with our constitution, with our freedom of, of what we have, um, we can plant lampstands that are a part of no denomination, and we're free to do so. And the, and the state can't come along and say, well, you're not a real church, and you're not a real pastor, although I've had nightmares. Um, and, and that may come someday, someday. Um, uh, and, and, and we've had attempts in that regard. I, I'll say this is the last thing I'll do, and then we'll close in prayer here. But um, the State Board of Education sued Tyndale Theological Seminary a number of years ago and said, you guys cannot issue the degrees you're issuing uh, because you don't meet our accreditation standards. And, and they were the governing agency over the University of Texas and other colleges and universities and so forth. And so they told Tyndale to quit issuing degrees and quit issuing their, their diplomas to the men that were going through their seminary. And um, Tyndale said, uh, you have no jurisdiction here. And, and anyway, the thing went to court. And, and actually, the state took them to court and they defended themselves. And they had hundreds of thousands of dollars of, of fines and fees and other things assigned. Well, the end result is they won at the Texas Supreme Court. And the Texas Supreme Court said, agreeing with the Constitution, that the, the, the state has no governing authority over churches, over any matters of faith and religion and practice. And, and if, if, if Tyndale wants to issue a degree, Tyndale can issue a degree within their parameters of the school they set up. And same thing with Austin Bible Church. And, and you know, we don't issue degrees, and, and the men that, that graduate here are unlettered in that sense. They don't have Ph.D. after their name. They're unlettered. But uh, the state has no sovereignty over us in those regards, see, at least as of now. Now, that can change. That can change. And uh, in whatever, if I'm told I can't preach because I don't have their license, well, uh, I'm not preaching because of their license anyway. So uh, as far as that goes... Um, but if those days do arrive, then we may we may have to make some choices and face those consequences. So anyway, I would recommend go to the uh, ABC website, and um, there's a great description there. It should be, of course, your homepage when you first load uh, your when your uh, web browser first comes up. Okay, and um, I did this by the way because it was so embarrassing once I, when I opened up my web browser and, and my real or my other homepage came up and it wasn't the church website. I said, okay, so from now on, probably where I get so many hits on our website. Uh, but Austin Bible Church is a golden lampstand planted by Jesus Christ to shine the light of the knowledge of God the Father in Austin, Texas. Through the delegated shepherd teaching of his right hand messenger. Jesus Christ stands in the midst of this lampstand and provides leadership in our worship of God the Father in spirit and in truth. So if you want anybody, if you want to tell anybody what Austin Bible Church is, that's what we are. We're a lampstand. The pastor and other teachers feed the flock with the whole counsel of God's word, line upon line and precept upon precept. Our services are always successive, teaching through the text of scripture, isagogically, categorically, and exegetically. We study to show ourselves approved, accurately handling the word of truth. So take the first half of that and you can describe that to anyone that, uh, that cares to know. All right. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your faithfulness. I thank you for ecclesiology and so many things, Father. And I thank you for the freedom that our nation has had for all these years. We pray that freedom continues. We have an election this week. That's in your hands, Father. Uh, Daniel 2 and Daniel 4, these chapters tell us and other passages tell us that we will get the president you give us. And uh, yet, Father, we still uh, step forward. We still vote. We voice our convictions. Father, it's our blessing to participate. And thank you for allowing us to live in a land where we can participate in such things. And so, Father, um, glorify your son and provide for each one of us. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.